Hello and welcome to Gravitas Wins Conversations. When we think of nature, we think of it as something we go on a vacation to. But guess what? Nature is our home. It was here before us. And there are a lot of things that we can observe and learn from nature. To discuss this topic more, I invited my good friend Siddharth. I hope you will enjoy this particular conversation. Hey Sid, welcome to the conversation. Hi Joseph, thanks for having me. Uh, let's start with the wildlife photography that you are interested in. How did you get into it and what was uh, what led you into it? Well, photography was frankly never the interest or the initial intention, I would say. Uh, how it started off as was uh, through photo documentation. So I would go on these uh, sort of conservation activities and I'll take my camera along. And at that time I had a slinky little camera, mm, uh, a sort of like a point and shoot. And, uh, and during those days, mobile cameras were not that evolved either. <laughs> so, uh, so I used to carry that point and shoot camera and photo document wherever I used to go. Like, let's just say if I were to see a paw print of an animal or something, right, I would photo document it. Um, Similarly, if I were to see a new bird or something like that, and at that time, my knowledge was also pretty limited. So what I would do is take a picture of that bird, uh, you know, bring it to my seniors and ask them, which bird is this and how do I identify it? Well, what are the identifying features? Are these birds endemic or are they migrants? So uh, that's how it all started. And slowly I got, you know, I started getting better at it. And then uh, thanks to my sister, to a certain extent, thanks to... Uh, Several of my friends and my girlfriend at that time, who is my wife now, she also forced me to participate in a lot of these uh, photography competitions. And slowly and surely, I won a few uh, awards. So after that, it, I kind of started giving it the attention that it deserved. So I realized that I was, I had an act for it. I was getting better mm. at it. So I thought, like, why not give it the full attention that it deserves? Why were you interested in? Uh, photo documenting, documenting these birds and animals? Uh, initially, it was just you know, knowledge build up, like in the sense, like okay. I was interested in the conservation part, like I mentioned, that was my mm. first love. I mean, that still is mm. my first love, right? So uh, I love it. I want to preserve it for the next generation or the generation to come. Um, so that was the initial sort of mindset, right? In terms of photo documentation, like let's just say, um, I'll give you an example, right? Say, for instance, if you're going for a census, right? Now, there are different methodologies that one can follow uh, during the census. So you have something called a line transect method, wherein you have a two kilometer straight line that you basically follow and you record all kind of animal activities perpendicular to that two kilometer straight line, right? It could be animal scat, which is basically droppings, right? Animal droppings. Uh, you know, any uh, any kills, any animal kills, any carcasses or anything of that sort or any live animals that you see, right? So you need to document all of that. Generally, what we do is we are given a sheet wherein we note down the, uh, you know, the sightings or whatever or the findings we have. And it also helps if you have a camera, right? So if you find mm. something unique, right, you just take a photo, uh, photo of it. So that's how all it's, uh, you know, all of it started. And then, you know, Everything interests me about the forest. Now, generally, people, when they go to a forest, right, let's just say if you go to any of the tiger parks like Corbett or Kanha or Bandhavgarh or Kabini in Karnataka, where I am from, uh, generally, people go for target species. I want to see a black panther. I want to see a tiger. I want to see a lion in gear, probably, right? So those are target species. For me, when I get into a forest, it's like a treasure trove of uh, of everything right it could be the tiniest of birds like so you have these birds called warblers like reed warblers and uh, and uh, uh, greenish warbler they're about this size right and they're very hard to spot i find them interesting right so uh, so for me i mean it's never a target species i mean it is that's how i plan my photography and i'll come to that later maybe uh but it's it's the whole the entire experience right so mm. uh, so that's yeah. where the you know sort of uh, 
itch for photography started like let me take a picture of this let me look at the finer details like how do i distinguish a greenish warbler from a reeds warbler like what are the distinguishing mm. features right so that's how it all started and then i you know sort of t- took it up a little semi professionally i would believe yeah okay so we will talk about both of that aspects mm-hmm. uh, the nature conservations and the other one uh, f- first let's start about uh, talk about this wildlife photography in little more detail mm-hmm. uh, now that you 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 earned whatever that you know do you plan any photography sessions or you just go into the forest and then uh, shoot whatever that comes uh, on your way no in fact there is a lot of planning involved right so uh, regarding the target species that i was talking about mm-hmm. now the only thing is my target species are not limited to tigers lions elephants or something yeah. like that right so uh, say for instance uh, you know sometime back uh, i wanted to shoot a uh, shoot with the camera of course <laughs> shoot uh, yeah, black be careful <laughs> yeah exactly um, never leave anything to people's imagination um, so um, i wanted to shoot the black neck cranes of uh, you know uh, of ladakh right now they are um, a migratory species and they're very rare and their numbers have dwindled over the years right mm. they're extremely shy so i wanted to uh, you know photograph them so i had to plan about their migration migratory patterns right when do they mm. visit india and what are the places that i can visit where i can get a good sight of it so almost for a period of 15 20 days uh, i was on a motorcycle in ladakh with my huge lens uh, you know hauling my huge lens around which is which was a scary experience uh, to tell you the truth because those lenses are pretty expensive right so and the roads are in ladakh now they are pretty good but this was back in i think 2019 the roads were not that great especially to the places that i was going to so um, so i went to almost five or six different places where there were some recorded sightings of this bird and then finally i went to a place uh, which is uh, in eastern ladakh a place called hanle which also has the highest uh, sort of space observatory in india uh so over there i found a black a pair of black neck cranes right and uh, they were very sort of uh, i don't know if the word kindness kind of applies to animals but they were gracious enough to uh, let me into their uh, sort of uh, comfort zone right so they mm-hmm. got very close and um, there was a small water body and i was sitting just adjacent to it they came very close and i got like all full frame shots of them so that was a wonderful experience uh, so that's how i plan my trips uh, secondly uh, another example that i wanted to give you was uh, this was also quite interesting all of us have this one thing that we really want to do in life my thing is finding the rarest of animals right mm-hmm. uh, and uh, that hallowed species for me was snow leopard right so i was like i need to uh, photograph a snow leopard in the wild right mm. i started doing my research about you know where can i find them in india or abroad uh, generally mongolia was the first country that i thought about because they are sighted pretty easily there in india off late uh, it has started but it was not that common back then and this was in 2014 i believe 2014 2015 so I did that research for almost three years, and in 2017, I went to uh, Spiti, Himachal, and saw my first snow leopard. Right? Mm. It's pretty difficult. I mean, you have to brave the elements. You have to be there during peak winter, where the temperature plummets to like minus 35 degrees at night, and stay on the field for almost the entire day, from dawn till dusk. because mm. snow leopards are extremely uh, lazy i wouldn't say they are lazy they conserve their energy right because in such mm. tough conditions right they don't move around much they only move when they have to hunt right mm. uh, and they have huge areas like one snow leopard can be present uh, can have an area of around 100 square kilometers right or even mm. more right mm. so if they have to pr- patrol their area which they do at night after dusk or if they have to hunt uh, which they do during dawn and dusk that's when they move 
Mm. And uh, in the interim, what do you do if you find a snow leopard, uh, which you cannot, by the way, the camouflage is supreme. I mean, like it's crazy camouflage. Even if they're sitting right in front of you, you won't be able to see them out. So Mm. you need uh, help from the local lights and the scouters and the guides over there to actually uh, see a leopard. And uh, generally what you do is whenever they see a leopard, it will probably be cooped up uh, in some you know, hill or something like that. So you basically wait for it to get up. And that could take anywhere between three to four hours to seven to eight hours. <laughs> right. So, uh, so that's how it is. Uh, um, yeah. So that's how I plan my trip actually. So I, um, I get intrigued by a particular species and mm. I try to find it out. Like, where do I find it? So right now there are a couple of species that are there in my list. I'm, I think I'm making my life more difficult because uh, one of the species that are there in my list are almost at the brink of extinction. And in, mm-hmm. so they were initially found in five different states. Now they're only found in two. Mm. Um, verified in one, but supposedly found in two. Mm. So that's how rare the species is. And uh, as far as the latest census numbers, there are about 60 individuals still in the wild, left in the wild. So that's... What is the species? It's a caracal. It's a, a Indian caracal. So caracal okay. is a kind of uh, medium-sized cat, which mostly hunts birds and smaller mammals. You would have seen it on uh, Discovery. It just leaps and it basically you know, catches birds in flight and all of that, right? So it's a fascinating mm-hmm. animal. So, uh, so I'm trying to... Uh, photograph that another cat which is very very rare in india also uh, it's called a manul uh, uh, that's a local uh, term for it uh, scientific uh, i wouldn't say the scientific but the general english name for it is uh, palace cat hmm. so it's a very it's the fluffiest cat in the world right <laughs> looks amazing so again it's found in like uh, the northern edges of the country in ladakh and that area so, so yeah. from everything that you are talking about, mm-hmm. it requires a quite a lot of patience. Oh yeah, it does. So, so the question that I have is the follow-up question to that I have is: Is wildlife photography more of patience, or is it a skill involved in it as well? Uh, see, uh, okay, let me answer it in the shortest way possible without sounding too preachy. So. Um, so a lot of people ask me, like, so I also teach photography uh, mm-hmm. to uh, students and uh, you also take them for like, you know, practicals and like excursions and all photography trips, if you will. So a lot of people ask me, like, is it the tool? Is it patience? Is it skill? So tools, uh, unlike what many say that it does not depend on the tool, it's, uh, you know, the person taking the picture. So uh, no, that's not entirely true. Right. Otherwise, you'll find all the professional professional photographers around the world, right, carrying like point and shoots. They don't. Mm-hmm. They actually mm-hmm. invest quite a lot on good gear, right? Mm-hmm. Because something like a frame rate, right? If you take ten frames per second, if you take twenty frames per second, that impacts your output. Because mm-hmm. let's just say you're taking a picture of a flight, a bird in flight, right? You want the wings and the head and the beak to be in a certain sort of uh, you know, place where everything mm-hmm. is visible and everything is crisp. Now that might come if you, you know, fire a burst of 20 shots, one out of those 20 might be that perfect picture. For mm. that, you need good equipment, right? Mm. Mm. So that's mm. one. Secondly, patience. Yeah, this is the most important aspect because uh, wildlife photography is not studio photography where you can set up the light. You can mm. set up everything. You can set up your model or your subject or whoever, right? If it's a baby or whoever. Wildlife is you're waiting for things to happen. And sometimes they might not happen. Mm. They might disappoint you. It's a very disappointing hobby or activity, I would say. It's very disappointing at times. So, yeah, I mean, it does, uh, you know, I mean, if you want to attain moksha, pick up wildlife <laughs> photography it definitely teaches you patience and to deal with disappointments mm-hmm. right because a lot of times uh, like to give you an example last uh, last year i was in bharatpur bharatpur is a bird sanctuary in up uh, 
bordering Rajasthan. It's uh, Asia's largest bird sanctuary. I was there for three days. And for three days, three complete days, there was the air was just filled with smog. There was zero mm. visibility. The bird mm. would be right in front of me, but I couldn't see it, right? Mm. So much so that there was a partial solar eclipse there as well. I was directly looking at the sun, the sun was not there. And this is like at 12 noon I'm talking about, mm. right? So yeah, so that's the disappointment part. So, uh, you know, it kind of develops all those uh, sort of qualities and virtues in you, I guess, wildlife photography. But one thing which is very important, I think it's, uh, it's the framing, which is the artistic aspect. Right? Mm. You're either born with it or you're not, right? Mm -hmm. Like some people uh, are born to take selfies. Okay? <laughs> don't want to make fun of all people. of us are <laughs> right some people are born to take selfies and uh, and some people like my friends always complain why don't you take pictures of people I'm like i don't find interesting them people. interesting yeah exactly they, they are not yeah they are not extinct species not extinct but i don't find people interesting that's all <laughs> good, good. That's it. Uh, so one of the things that you talked about when you were <clears throat> looking out for these birds and then they were gracious enough to let you in and then they they were there uh -huh. when you were taking photographs. Are there any other places where the some of the animals posed for you? Oh, yeah. There are plenty of such examples, actually. So um, this earlier this year, I was at Corbett National Park in Uttarakhand, right? Now, you know, whoever... Has During COVID. Yeah, during COVID. So I was okay. in Pilibit and uh, Corbett. So what happened was I was there at Uttarakhand and I stayed there for three months. I was doing a workation from there, both me and my wife. And Corbett is within Uttarakhand. So you could travel within the state, but not outside the state. And Corbett was very close to where I was put up. So I could just go there over a weekend. Anyway, so I stayed at Dikhala, which is like uh, the main grasslands of Corbett. That's like most of the, that's that's the place where most of the tiger sightings happen. It's a beautiful place. And the problem with Indian parks are you mostly have people from the cities with mobile phones or iPads, and they'll keep, um, you know, poking the driver or the naturalist. And they yeah. constantly heckle them to show them a tiger as if like, you know, they can just give the tiger a missed call and make him appear all of a sudden, right? A very impractical way of seeing the forest, but that's what happens. Mm. So the drivers are like conditioned to deal with that. Now, as far as we are concerned, I mean, I'm fairly knowledgeable about the forest and I can track animals very easily, like through alarm calls or through bug marks or something like that, right? Even if the forest is not very familiar. Like when I say a forest is not very familiar, is like if you take me to some of the local forests here, like Bandipur or Nagarhole, right? If you just put me anywhere in the forest, I can just find my way back, right? Mm -hmm. So on the other forests, it does not apply. Uh, but still, I mean, if I look at the general sort of map of the forest, I can figure out, uh, you know, yeah. the animal movements and everything, right? Which place would be better to actually sit and wait at to actually get a sighting? Right. Anyways, mm -hmm. so what uh, happened was this guide, he was not listening to me. And over there, what happens is the moment a tiger appears, you have 20 vehicles rushing towards it and mm -hmm. almost carrying mm -hmm. off the animal to get into the bushes. Right. And I particularly told my driver not to do this. Right. Because in, in any case, we have long lenses. Right. So even if the tiger appears at a distance, I can very easily take a picture. And in fact, I'll get better picture that way. I'll get a blurred out background and everything, a depth of field, if you will. So what happened was uh, at one time we started hearing alarm calls. Uh, alarm call is basically, uh, you know, distress calls uh, from deer or macaques or monkeys, if you will. Right. Generally, whenever they see a predator around, they start giving out these alarm mm, calls. Mm, right? And mm. that's when you know that there is a predator around. It could be a tiger or a leopard or something like that. Right. So what happened was I started hearing alarm calls. And one vehicle had seen the tiger get into one side of the forest. Right. And there were 20 vehicles who had gathered there. Right. Exactly at the spot where the tiger got in from. And my driver also wanted to be in that lot. I said, like, don't do that. Please come out from there. And we went almost a kilometer and a half in a different direction. And I told him to wait here because I 
thought that there is a small animal trail there there mm. is a 5% possibility that the tiger might come out from there you know judging by the alarm calls because alarm call what happens is it starts shifting from one end to the other right mm. so with that you can judge how the animal is moving right and he's like sir kya kar rahe ho sir kya kar rahe ho sighting nahi hoga and like all that stuff and like dude nahi hoga to it's my responsibility right mm. so you stay here so there were like other 1920 vehicle on one side and we were the solo vehicle on the other side lo and behold 5 minutes later the tigress comes out of the bushes sits right in front of us <laughs> it she just decides to sit in front of us as if to say thank you for saving me from that commotion over there right it didn't move it sat and animals are generally shy they would leave i mean yeah mm-hmm. these tigers are generally used to having vehicles around them but still I mean, whenever mm. she she sees like those 20 vehicles right she would just move mm. and we got like i almost finished uh, finished my sd card that day uh, <laughs> of my camera but uh, anyways uh, she was there for some time and then slowly these ve- other vehicles you know they kind of realized that we had uh, you know found the tiger and started joining us and after the third vehicle had joined us she left Mm. Uh, she was like i've had enough of this let me just go right now <laughs> you got your fill <laughs> so i'll be out on my business so that's how um, you know uh, i would say uh, uh, th- that was one of the occasion when the tiger actually posed for us another time mm. was uh, in a place in uh, karnataka called daruji bear sanctuary it's near hampi uh, so uh, so they over there uh, you know there is a small patch of land called daruji sanctuary and you'll have like uh, they have like around 30 35 bears over there right mm-hmm. and the forest department they generally feed the bears with jaggery and like dry fruits and stuff like that right so they come at one spot every uh, you know every day in the evening and in the morning so so i was there with the you know forest guide and everything over there and i was taking pictures so we had the usual sort of bear ramp walk like one bear after the other and all of that and then suddenly um, you know uh, bears have these cute little cubs right which would piggyback mm-hmm. on their mothers right it, yeah. it's an amazing sight so i saw a mother with two cubs just sitting on top right and she just stood and just paused and looked at me for almost around say 20 seconds now 20 mm. seconds in wildlife photography is like an eternity you can take yes. around 200 shots 200 or like <laughs> even more than that mm-hmm. so i got some amazing shots of that mm-hmm. right so uh, and that particular photograph was actually taken by uh, a few foundations in the us also uh, you know they are working for the conservation of bears globally and all of that so they really like those photographs and like can we take them and use them like, sure go for it hmm. so yeah okay uh when when you're working with all of these wild animals it it's wild right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. any near death experience that you had not while photography but during my conservation activities yes um because generally when you're doing wildlife photography um if you are at in a protected area you are always on a vehicle mm, mm. right and generally animals don't attack vehicles right um they don't jump on vehicles or doesn't happen okay generally uh but uh during my conservation activities now what kind of activities did we used to do so we used to do foot patrolling right so foot patrolling is like when you actually walk with the forest guards into the forest and look for any kind of snares laid down by villagers around the forest to catch animals mm. or if you see a dead animal um, like you look at it you identify whether it died because of natural causes or was it uh, because of poaching or something of that sort right so so that is called foot patrolling right we were given a beat uh, so a beat is the minimum unit within a forest so you have a forest which is broken down into various ranges and then each range is broken down into various beats right so it's called beat walk so we used to basically go on our beats and then you know monitor the entire area criss cross around it so i remember in 
so um that was the year uh, when i embarked on my first sort of conservation activity mm-hmm. and uh, this was in bhadra tiger reserve in northern karnataka north northwestern karnataka i would say so um so i had gone there for elephant census basically it was called it elephant enumeration sort of uh, this thing initiative and generally we were each uh, each of the volunteers were given a beat and we were basically monitoring that so i had along with me i had a forester a forest guard a beat guard and a watcher forest watcher a forest watcher is basically a daily wage worker who actually works with the forest department on a daily wage basis right so there were four of us and uh, so we completely like you know walked for almost like 20 22 kilometers that entire day didn't didn't find any animal apart from deer right um and then towards the end we met with another team who had done their sort of uh, rounds as well so and we were just heading back to our uh, base which was an anti poaching camp at that time and as we were coming uh we suddenly uh, started hearing rustling leaves right around and mm. bhadra is very dense by the way it's one of the densest forest in karnataka um so what happened one of our uh, one of the foresters he actually walked uh, a little ahead of us and he said like sir uh, there is an elephant herd around so the herd there were about 27 elephants in that herd right with young ones and like sub adults mm. and adults and if we were like here they were like they had almost surrounded us in the shape of a horseshoe right so there was only one way to go and this mm. way there was like the way to our escape was covered in thick forest right so we couldn't have escaped in that direction so we were almost surrounded from three sides right and then they started trumpeting no trumpet is mm. a is, is a distress sign because they have young mm. in their group right and we have a very unfamiliar smell to the elephants right because mm. we are not denizens of the forest right so mm. so they don't identify our smell that well and uh, unfortunately back then a lot of us uh, were still pretty new to the ways of the forest we used to use copious amounts of deodorants and stuff like that oh. which you're not supposed mm. to because those are unfamiliar smell within the forest right mm-hmm. so that also kind of irks the animals in the forest right so anyways so um, that happened and uh, we started running and uh, so all of us started running in all direction right because we were so new we didn't know how to react although we were mm-hmm. given an orientation but during the tri- time of distress you don't remember all of that yeah. right so yeah 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 so uh, so i remember there were like two elephants one sabadalt and uh, a matriarch she came right behind me right mm. so and generally in the forest in some places you have these epts like so i was very close to our anti poaching camp and these anti poaching camp had epts epts are basically elephant proof trenches right okay so they dig a sort of trench around any sort of uh, small hut or any camps or anything so that the elephants don't I mean, barge in right mm. so i basically just took a dive in that ditch uh, or the mm. trench rather just mm. to escape it mm. right so that was one uh, mm. it was a very <laughs> close call i would say uh, the second one was uh, uh, second one was when when i was like completely experienced okay uh, in conservation matters and stuff so i was working with wct wildlife conservation trust uh, and uh, Uh, so i has had already participated in the first phase of tiger sensors and uh, the next phase uh, that was not open to public volunteers but since i was working with the ngo and stuff uh, so i tagged along with uh, their sort of uh, you know field director from south field director or field representative from the south uh, mr nagraj bhat and uh, the then director of bandipur he is my wildlife mentor mr kantaraj mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. he actually said like take him along teach him like how you're setting the camera trap and all and by that time i had already learned so i said like i can actually assist you in those activities mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so i went inside the forest and this was in the hediala range of uh, bandipur 
So we came, uh, so we took a camper van and there were about 10 of us, all STF, special task force people, uh, myself, uh, Nagraj and the driver. So overall 10, 11 people in that Bolero camper. Anyway, so, so we came to a Y junction. So the road went like this and then it split into two. Mm, right? mm, mm. So we were thinking whether to keep, uh, you know, sort of the, uh, the camera traps. Uh, generally, we keep two camera traps. So, and they are like uh, motion sensitive. Any animals which pass through them, right? Mm, they'll take mm, a picture from mm. both flanks, basically. Both, mm, right? mm. So generally, what we were thinking was, should we take it? Uh, should we keep the cameras at the base of the Y or should we keep it on either direction, like the left or the right? Because animals generally take the shortest path, right? So what happened was we looked that the left side had a clearing so we could see it from a great distance. The right side, we couldn't because there was a sort of gradient. So you had to go down a little bit and then there was probably a trail that went in, right? So, uh, so uh, the guy from WCT asked the driver, like, can you go down and just find out if there is a trail that goes in? Uh, he didn't. Uh, no, 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 I'm tired. Because it was like, I don't know. He was very reluctant to go. I asked some of the STF guys, and like, no, 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 we're not going. And uh, Nagra said, um, Siddharth, you will go. I'm like, yeah, sure, why not? <laughs> so I went. Uh, so imagine this. This is the road. So I had to go 70 feet down through a gradient. Mm. And then about 40 mm -hmm. feet forward, right? So 70 mm -hmm. and 40, about 130, 150 feet forward. And then I just removed the bush. And there was a tiger sitting 20 feet away from me. Oh. <laughs> and I look behind, I can't see the vehicle because I have moved in an L sort of fashion, right? Shape. Yeah, mm. L shape. So uh, I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> what do I do now? <laughs> so, but at that time, what happens, your trainings and your instincts kind of kick in, right? So I did not rush. So generally, when I spotted the tiger, it was as startled as I was, right? Mm -hmm. It didn't sense my arrival. So generally, uh, when predators see you, right, if they want to be found, they raise their tail and they flick it in the air. If they mm. don't want to be found, if they are in hunting mode, they'll drop their tail down. It'll flick, but much lower, right? So they want to keep a low profile. And this is like, oh, boss, you're very close to me. Stand back. So anyways, so, uh, so that's what I did. <laughs> and I took a few back steps. And the moment I was at the vertex of the L and I could see the vehicle, I, and I made a rush for it. So yeah, that was yeah. also a close call out. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Uh, you you talked about this nature conservation, and that is what started your interest in wildlife photography and everything. Mm -hmm. uh, can you tell me what is nature conservation? Why should we bother about it? Okay, um, I think the word conservation so uh, sounds a little pompous. So mm. I would say preservation, right? Mm. Nature preservation. That sounds more apt. Now, what happens is, um, see, I have an issue with the word natural resource, right? Um, whenever we hear about the word resource, right, we think about infinite supply, right? Your mm. resources are infinite, right? I always call it like assets and liabilities, right? The depletion of ozone layer, that's a liability, right? If you lose all your assets, you turn them into liabilities. Mm -hmm. So that's my way of looking at things, right? So nature preservation, why is it important? To give you a very simple example, I don't know um, if it applies to all parts of India, but when I was young in Calcutta, growing up in Calcutta, we didn't have a filter at home. And I used to stay in like central Calcutta, right? The most developed part of the city. We never had a filter at home. The water that we get, used to get from... Um, the municipality right it was clean enough to drink yes slowly and slowly i don't know when it happened it started off with those gravity filters like with those long sort of uh, filters inside which would just basically separate the suspended particles from water we shifted to ro filters and membrane filters and like uv filters and god knows what uh, other kind of filters there is when did this happen and how come nobody noticed it? How come there was no protests about it? 
right mm. so something that was available to you for free now you have to spend 15 20000 to set mm. up at home and pay a annual maintenance charge of 5000 yes that's water right now why am i giving you this example out of the 6 600 odd rivers in the country 300 rivers have their origins in forests mm. right in various forests so what happens and if you see in the trend latest trend most of the forests are being renamed after the main river within the forest the lifeline of the mm-hmm. forest so to say like uh, anchi dandeli tiger reserve in in the south in karnataka uh, was changed to uh, the name of the tiger reserve was changed to kali tiger reserve you know after the kali river which runs through the forest and it's also called the lifeline of the forest same thing with corbett national park such an iconic park right uh, recently uh, the name uh, you know there was a suggestion to change the name to uh, ramganga tiger reserve and the reason or ramganga national park and the reason is the main lifeline of corbett which is the ramganga river right so the reason people are doing this is because you know water is going to be the most uh, expensive resource resource in the next few years right mm. after oil because oil is in the past right now we have alternatives to oil now um so if you want to you know save these kind of natural resources right you have to do something i mean look mm-hmm. at delhi for instance right now right it's you're close to delhi right so <laughs> i'm not sure how uh, the weather uh, how the air quality index is in panchkula but in delhi it's dismal right? yes visibility is low and i was there in delhi last year and it felt as if it it was overcast but it was not it was just smog right yeah yeah so so you basically have impure water already for which you have a filter at home the air quality is bad right mm-hmm. if these things don't wake people up i don't know what will the food is already contaminated anyways <laughs> yeah go for it yeah. now now i mean i agree with you i, I am from chennai uh, or rather tamil nadu and then chennai is now going through a flood re- uh, a flood uh, episode and every year it goes through it mm-hmm. and primarily because all of the lakes have been converted into apartment areas and they have built that without any kind of uh flow for water to come in and 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 so on and so forth right so i i i get your point how do you balance between progress there's a population that is exploding mm-hmm. they need houses they need um places where they can live i mean forget about any other activity right mm-hmm. uh they need place to live so how do you balance between preserving nature and progress okay. how can we think about it I, i'm not asking for a you know clear cut this is the answer kind of a thing how can we think about it okay uh, i'll try to keep this as short as possible because i can spend hours talking about this um and i'll start off with a quote so this is a quote from a very renowned tiger scientist from india dr k ullas karant so he once said that the growth engine of the country is similar to an automobile engine or mm-hmm. the country is like a automobile the growth is its i mean any kind of growth is its engine which takes it forward and then you compare it uh, with a automobile of any kind right now imagine and uh, environmental impact assessment is like the brakes right mm-hmm. so imagine you're fitting your car with a 12 cylinder turbo engine right without any brakes what happens to the car it is sure to crash mm-hmm. right so right now with our policies and all we do have a lot of lofty ideas we get to hear the politicians share a lot of lofty ideas but are they implemented practically that is the question mm-hmm. like to give you an mm-hmm. example right i was uh, happy yesterday i was looking uh, i was watching the padma awards and i noticed that uh, mm. tulsi gora she received a padma award and such people need to be recognized but that's only on the surface 
you uh, i mean for any kind of in, uh, you know clearance any kind of environmental clearance the government has set up a body called environmental uh, appraisal committee esc mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. now last time i checked the body was uh, created initially in 2014 i'm not sure the current uh, uh, you know the who all are there in the current body but in 2014 when i uh, looked at the list they had seven individuals uh, out of seven f- uh, five were uh, ex ifs and ips officers two were from other sectors all of them uh, in their past had histories uh, in uh, you know in working in the coal sector energy sector mining sector so these guys are actually in the appraisal committee for environment clearance or mm. environmental impact assessment mm. so do you see the dichotomy here or do you see the like, conflict of interest right so i mean i uh, ideally i would want somebody who understands environmental impact and, and uh, understands the ecology of a place to be in that body right mm. so what we are doing again to quote professor kulas karanth right or dr kulas karanth that we have a uh, you know automobile with a v12 engine right turbocharged i don't know 980 bhp or something but we don't have any brakes we don't even have a maruti brake right now mm. <laughs> right so what's going to be uh, the eventuality of such a situation it's for us to see and observe i guess you you are right and as i have said you know i have observed i have seen mm-hmm. the impact of these environmental issues on ground in chennai i have not even gone into the natural parks and natural reserves and depleting rivers and so on and so forth this is a occurrence every year uh the the officers will come in they will clean up everything and they'll forget and the next year the same thing happens next year same thing happens and i'm talking about this for last 10 years this this is happening for the last 10 years and so all of this is happening and i'm witnessing it and and, and i think people are understanding this but on the other side of it let's say for example compare china you are saying like i mean we are fit with 12 engine whatever that horsepower and everything probably we are not moving at one point in time probably 1970 80 china and india were probably at the same starting point so to speak uh, i am not even sure whether we have a maruti engine in our country so in that but i am not getting political here what i am trying to find out is that we have a long way to go in the growth mm-hmm. i'm i'm taking that particular quote so one how do we balance out the progress and the preservation and i'm not saying we should not preserve okay mm-hmm. uh, i visited some of the uh, countries uh, uh, brussels especially the brussels center of brussels the, the brussels whole city that is where all of the top world organizations their headquarters are all of them are there but 40 or 50 percentage of the city is still green they still have forest around to walk and trek and everything within that that brussels area how can we balance out progress with preserving nature how do we think about it that's what and and, and more importantly see i am not a policy maker uh maybe you have a lot more influence but i and my you know people whom i talk to they are all in a normal day to day life what can we do to preserve this particular nature um, among us around us i'm not even talking about globe i'm talking about in panchkula what can i do to preserve nature it's a loaded question i think you rolled two questions into one uh, what can uh, how can we balance development growth yes. uh with preserving nature and then what can we do as an individual right so i'll answer yes, the first yes. question first so how do we balance development and growth i think we need to work on the definition of development and growth what mm. is development and growth right mm. is it to have bad air bad drinking water is that growth of mm. some kind right mm. is it to have bad infrastructure right unplanned infrastructure like i'll tell you this uh, the, uh, you quoted the example of chennai right mm. the buildings happened those are development uh, activities right mm. but how did they happen 
they happened over landfills. Mm. Now, the city planners, whoever planned those, right, they did not think about stormwater drainage, right? Mm. Gradient, overall gradient of the city, like if it rains on the higher levels, right, how would the water trickle down, right? And how would the water actually get into the ground so that your aquifers are replenished, right? Those plannings were not done. Mm. That is unplanned growth, Mm. right? Unscientific and unplanned growth, right? Mm. That is not how growth should be. And that's not sustainable. Mm. And we have this mm. buzzword today, like, you know, everything is should be sustainable. What is sustainable? Yeah, yeah. Right? How can mm. an oil company talk about sustainable growth? Right? Mm. This just, I mean, it just messes with my head a little bit. Like, what are you talking about <laughs> sustainable? Anyway, so that is what I'm saying. So this idea of growth, right, at what expense? Right? Mm. I told you the importance of, you know, protected areas and forests on the water supply that we have. Yeah. Of course, people, whenever they think about green, they think oxygen. But it's not just mm. oxygen. It's also the water that we drink. Yeah. Fresh water. Mm. 300, like I mentioned, 300 of our rivers and tributaries have their origins in like various tiger parks and like national parks of India, right? Let's just say tomorrow. So what happens if the tigers disappear? For instance, I'm just saying, right? So the top predator disappears. So what happens is all the you know ungulates right which the predator kind of feeds on right their population increases right when once their yeah. population increases they actually eat the grass in the forest right so that mm. causes soil mm. erosion and soil degradation mm. now once that causes mm. soil degradation right your water sources are affected so do you see the mm. trickle down effect yeah right um so um and in order to develop the forest right uh you actually quoted the example of Brussels and how green it is as a city. And this is applicable to a lot of European cities, right? Or be it mm. Oslo or Brussels or, um, you know, uh, um, even Munich to a certain extent, I would say. It's a little bit green, although it's highly industrialized. So uh, so these are ornamental, uh, you know, greening, I would say, right? Ah. So ornamental greening is something which you basically plant exotic trees and plants around. Uh, and then, and I'll talk, tell, talk to you about the downside of it. Uh, so ornamental greening is good. It gives you oxygen and all of that. That is all fine. But it does not do anything to balance uh, the, I mean, sort of tilt the balance of eco- e- ecology, I would say, right? Mm. Generally, uh, what is ornamental greening? Now, so we were under the British rule for 200 years, right? Now, thanks to them. They thought that, you know, introducing an Australian plant in India would make their houses look pretty. Uh, The plant I'm talking about is called Lantana. Okay. Now that has become the cancer of forests in India. So it is a weed. It's a wild weed that grows in the harsh conditions of Australia. Now in India, where we have a pronounced monsoon, this condition is very favorable. It's, mm. it's growing like forest fire, right? And what it does is no animals feed on it, apart from a few birds, which actually feeds on the uh, seeds and the berries. It's actually po- uh, poisonous, right? So animals avoid it. It is thorny, so they can move through it, right? And it also sucks up the nutrients from the soil, and it prevents mm. native and endemic plants to grow. Mm. So it basically consumes the forest. That's called, you know, ornamental uh, sort of greening, so to say. Anyways, um, so how do we, uh, coming back to, sorry if I'm veering off the topic. Yeah. Mm. So uh, the thing is, as an individual, what we can do is a very simple thing, right? Every year on your birthday, right? What do you do? You blow out candles, you know, whatever your age is, you basically put so many candles and sometimes you have those numbers also, <laughs> maybe two candles, even if it's two, right? Instead of blowing out candles, plant a sapling somewhere and take care of it for at least three months, not even a mm. year, just three months, right? Ensure that, you know, no cows or any stray animal comes and destroys it just for three months, take care of it. Just water it. And generally you don't even have to water it plan accordingly and plant those trees right before monsoon. So the water part is Mm. taken care of, Mm. right? You Mm. can plant fruit trees. And if you plant like fruit trees, like, 
you know, say mango or guava or something, you'll find lots of birds and everything coming around your house, right? So that actually uplifts your mood also. Like when you see, you know, colorful birds around your house and all of that, right? So you can do that at an individual level. And mm-hmm. some of the other changes in practice, like I've stopped using plastic bottles since like, I don't know, 2014, 2015. I've never, never, ever purchased plastic bottles. So this is what I use at home. It's a metal sipper. And uh, even when I'm going on my treks and hikes, I generally uh, drink off rivers or streams or anything. Mm, I have a live straw kind of thing. Like if I find if the water is, the source is questionable, I generally use that live straw purifier. Uh, Apart from that, like, you know, you don't need to use plastic bottles and generally don't be lazy while going to shopping, like carry your own bag for crying out loud. (laughs) Generally these Mm -hmm. days you buy everything at home anyways, but I mean, these are small changes in your daily practices that you can do to at least cause less harm because the harm is already done, right? It will take some time to undo the harm that is already done, but at least it would not compile, get compiled if you make some slight changes in your daily habits. At, at least your part of the damage you can uh, eliminate. Yeah. Right? Like yeah. If, yeah. if I practice some of these things. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so f- you have spent a quite a lot of time in nature in, in, in whatever form, whether it is for conservation and preservation or for wildlife photography. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you are also working still. This is not your main profession. This mm-hmm. is not your earning your uh, bread and butter. Mm-hmm. What lessons have you ported from you spending time in nature into your professional life it could be on leadership it could be on any i mean working with teams it could be anything it could be even your mindset in dealing with people uh what lessons have you ported i think the first thing is teamwork right mm-hmm. and i'll give you an interesting analogy about teamwork okay from the forest i guess so remember i was t- talking to you about like alarm calls now yeah. uh, in the forest, right, you have this amazing symbiotic relationship between langurs, uh, which mm-hmm. are basically monkeys some mm-hmm. of a kind, and deer, spotted deer, right? Now, what is that symbiotic relationship? Uh, so generally, uh, langurs, they are uh, fussy eaters, right? So they, I mean, if they pluck some leaves from a high branch, They'll only eat a part of it and throw the rest. And the deer mm-hmm. would come under the tree and then they'll basically pick up the rest from there. Mm-hmm. Same thing happens with fruits. They'll only take a couple of bites, throw the rest. The deer will come. Now, generally, um, langurs sit at a vantage point, right? High up on yep. the tree. They are like arboreal, right? So generally, whenever they see any predator movement around, they'll give out alarm calls mm. to alert the deer, right? Mm. Now, what happens? Now, how do the deer pay back? Now, generally, langurs, they get tired, you know, sitting up on top of the tree. Sometimes they have to come down. When they do that, the deer is kind of, sp- uh, the deer kind of spread out, right? And then they become vigilant. And then they, if they see a predator, they give out alarm calls so that the langurs can actually get to the safety of the tree, right? So that's called teamwork. Basically, mm. you use your skills and your potential to actually, uh, you know, basically make it profitable for both parties, right? Mm. Or for the whole team, so to say. So I think the biggest thing that I've learned is teamwork mm. and who to place in which position. Like when I'm managing mm. a team, uh, it's very critical to identify talents and skills, right? Who is best suited to do what? I might find somebody who sucks at coding, but he's mm. great at client communication, right? Interacting mm. with client, right? And somebody uh, who is brilliant at coding sucks at that, you know, sucks at client communication, right? So how do you place one? Uh, maybe both of them have the same designation. Both of them are like, you know, consultants or senior consultants, right? But they have different skill sets. So how do you place them so that they succeed? Otherwise, if I were to just reverse the situation, both of them would not even meet expectation and they'll probably put in PIP in some time, right? Yeah. So identifying talents and like, you know, placing them in the right kind of activity, that is something that has, that I think I have learned from the forest, right? Secondly okay. is patience, perseverance. 
uh, <laughs> that is something definitely uh, one of my first sort of learnings from the forest mm-hmm. and third is looking ahead of the curve remember mm. i was telling you about the tiger in corbett l shape no no not the l shape the no. corbett where the tiger actually came in front of my vehicle ah, and yes. just sat yes yes so uh, that was looking ahead of the curve right so mm. you basically mm. look at all the telltale signs do your risk assessment and predict what's going to happen next mm. right keep your ears to the ground and basically pick up all the signals like during the course of a project right there are a lot of telltale signs which tells you that would we be able to meet the deadlines would we not be able to you do risk assessment right so i think that is something which is sharpened also that is something also i have learned from uh, my experiences in the forest yeah wonderful uh, while you were talking not just the last segment where you answered my direct question but i have been noting down in my mind of course all the lessons that you have been talking about one of the thing about the distress signal that you when you talked about uh it is rightly so about the teamwork that you talked about with respect to langur and uh, deer but what i was thinking is even during covid lot of our teammates are raising some of the distress signals which we are missing out probably it is time for us to pause and talk to them and we we might continue to ignore it one the first initial damage would be them they will get affected but over a period me as a leader will get affected because it is going to spread to others as well so that is what i was thinking that when there is a distress signal when i am observing it even at the early stage if i can handle that uh i mean i can i can avert a quite a lot of damage in my own team and then we are all you know in in one form or the other uh cousins of these animals so we have these kinds of distri- i mean raising these alarm signals and distress signals just that we ignore uh like like we have been ignoring about uh nature so uh, i have i have noted down quite a bit of these kinds of stuff and i will probably uh, post it on my blog and i will share it with you as well uh final a uh, couple of questions are said uh what's the kindest thing somebody has done for you like during my days of days of photography or doesn't ever? matter doesn't matter doesn't matter since we are talking about wildlife photography let me just share one experience one or two couple of experience i guess i think when i started off uh, my journey in conservation and everything in karnataka so i was a noob right i didn't know much about anything i guess uh, so i had a lot of guides and friends and senior uh conservationists who were my mentors at that time right so they used to take me along to these remote villages near nagarhole or bandipur or uh, you know tiger reserves in and around karnataka and i remember this one time i was near nagarhole to a, in a very small hamlet and i didn't speak the local language then i do now uh, very less but kaam chalao i can get get my way around mm-hmm. i guess um so at that time um, what happened was um, you know they were talking to uh, each other and then they said like and one of the villagers started tried to talk to me and then my friend prashant like who was my mentor there he said like no no he's not from around here he's from calcutta he's just come to assist us in our work and they were so happy and i almost became the sinosure of their attention after that and they were like okay okay you are our guest like they gave me tea and all and then they said like oh you know people from outside are coming to help us this really inspires us to do something so the activity was around awareness about speeding within forests uh, like there are a lot of these linear infrastructure projects and roads that are built through forests and they are basically dead traps for animals right so mm-hmm. when you have these local vehicles flying through them day and night and at really high speeds right you have a lot of road kills that happen in those forests like deer smaller animals like civet cats and mongoose and stuff like that right they get killed left and right so we were basically pacing posters of awareness like you should not speed at least in this stretch like right from this place to this place right when you're going right don't speed and stuff like that so anyways that really worked i mean i thought that i'm not going to add any value but just by dint of the fact that i i was an outsider at that point right they uh, it really inspired them that okay somebody from outside is coming and telling us 
something which is helpful and something which is needed right so that really worked at that time so i thought that was very kind like uh, i mean i felt like i was like being cajoled and babied a little bit so it was pretty nice <laughs> yeah very good very good what's your definition of living a good life still finding that out i would say mm, still um, i still don't know if i'm living the good life am i living a content life yes am i living a happy life yeah but good life that's a broad thing but i do have a theory around this now if you feel the need and the urgency to go to bed early so that you can wake up early the next morning to do the thing that you love doing mm-hmm. that's my definition of a good life mhm wonderful uh, that's a very different uh, definition that i have heard from others so it is it is good where can people find you online nasir so uh, my website is currently under maintenance it's called uh, siddharthaghosh.net right and i'm also available on various social media platforms like on instagram my handle is uh, sidd photo and uh, on facebook uh, my photography page is called siddhartha ghosh photography okay i will link to all of them in the show notes mm-hmm. uh, said one of my guests said the the best of the gift somebody can give you especially in this era is the attention and you have given me your attention for the last one hour or so and shared all your learnings and thank you very much for doing that my pleasure i hope you enjoyed our conversations please share what you liked in our conversation on social media and tag us have life of wins